We will be in cha- uh, chapter 23, verses 13 through 39. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and, hip- and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. Woe to you, blind guides! You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing, but if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools! Which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift on it, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And he who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous, and you say, If we had lived in the days of our forefathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up, then, the measure of the sin of your forefathers. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore, I am sending you prophets and wise men and teachers Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. I tell you the truth, all this will come upon this generation. Oh, Jerusalem. Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent you, how often I have longed to gather your children together, as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. 
Look, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Continuing our Lenten series through the end of Matthew, looking at the, what we call the last words of Jesus, the kind of final series of sermons and parables and teachings that Jesus engages in, um, in just that final week before the cross. Um, and thank you, Melanie, for reading uh, an unusually long scripture <laughs> reading that also is um, Jesus in very confrontational mode. But let's pray and then let's talk together about what he says there. God and Father, just pray that you might meet us here in your word. You might teach us what it means to truly follow after and trust in you. Lord, um, safeguard us from deception. Be with all of us sinners as we sit under your word. And be with me a sinner as I seek to proclaim it. Pray all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So I was thinking about this text, and I was thinking about, I mean, I grew up in the rural Midwest, right? Not here, but in Nebraska. And um, while my family was not one of those families, I grew up with a lot of families that were really into guns, right? Um, Some of you guys probably know or are people who are really into guns, and I am not making a political statement about that topic this morning. But one of the things that I noticed growing up in that world, right, was that on the one hand, there were people that I knew who were really into, you know, collecting and owning firearms, right? And they would have lots of them and could tell you all about them and would customize them and modify them and love them and think they're great. But um, those people never treated guns lightly, right? Um, I remember I had a friend whose dad was really into guns, and apparently one night... um, He got into his dad's unloaded handgun collection, but was like messing around with them and thinking that they were cool and got caught. And even though his dad was super mild mannered and he was a teenager, you know, he got his hide tanned and in a whole lot of trouble. And while I'm not commenting on the parenting situation, that is understandable because the people that I knew who were really into guns understood that they were really powerful and that because they were really powerful, they were really dangerous. Um, So they appreciated guns, but that didn't mean that they didn't also fear them and have a healthy sense of caution about how you approached them. And um, one of the things that almost everyone knows, right, if you think about the Gospels, is that Jesus didn't get um, along particularly well with the Pharisees, right? That's probably not news to anybody. You can't read the Gospels without him constantly kind of being in conflict conflict with these religious leaders in Israel, and this text is where that conflict comes to a climax. We said part of what's interesting about this last week of Jesus' life is that he stops kind of being cryptic or cautious and just comes out and says the things that he's been saying all along. But this is where he throws down, right, like tells it like it is, drops the mic, just kind of like um, with the Pharisees directly confronting the way that they view religion. And I think he's doing that because religion is kind of like a gun. There is this temptation for some people to talk about religion. That word is kind of like always bad, and that's not what I mean, right? I mean, there's a sort of religion that the Bible holds up as good and appropriate, but there's this temptation for other people to talk about religion and being religious as this sort of unmitigated good, right? That just religion itself is a good thing, or sort of just Christianity in the abstract is a good thing. Christians have done that. 
But that's not true, right? Because religion, like a gun, is a powerful and can be a dangerous thing. People, I mean, people in our world get killed, right, in the name of religion. And people get abused and ostracized and wounded in the name of religion. I mean, again, Christians do that, right? I mean, we're not just talking about those other people out there. Now, that doesn't disprove religion. Some people like to use it that way, but, I mean, abusing something doesn't mean that there's not a proper and good use for it. But it does remind us that because religion is powerful and hence dangerous, we need to be thoughtful about how we approach it. In fact, I think that that's why the Bible so often has warnings about how religion can go wrong, which is what's happening in this text. There is a need to be cautious and even fearful about how we approach religion. So here's what I want us to do this morning. Jesus is laying out in this passage, he gives this list of woes, a picture of a bunch of ways that religion and Christianity can go wrong. He pictures seven of them, all right? And I know that you're supposed to have like two or three point sermons, and I'm about to do a seven point sermon. We're going to power through this, but he has seven different ways that religion can go wrong, all right? And then at the end, he gives a few thoughts on what true religion should look like instead. So let's get started. First up, the first woe, he says that religion can go wrong when it loses the right goal. Religion goes wrong when it loses the right goal. So look at verse 13, all right? He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. So here's the picture, right? The Pharisees are the religious leaders of Jesus' world, and that means that they should be leading God's people, leading them into the kingdom, right? Into relationship with God, into knowing him, to move people towards God. But they've lost sight of that goal. They've ceased to seek God and instead made their religion about other stuff. Its goal has become something other than knowing and serving God, right? In Jesus' day, for some of these people, it was about kind of proving their ethnic superiority. And for some of these people, it was about gaining political influence and power in the Roman Empire. And for some of these people, it was about getting respect and prestige and kind of status in the world around them. And the problem was that in chasing those things and in teaching and modeling for other people chasing those things, they'd quit leading people into the kingdom. That they are, as Jesus pictures it, shutting the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. They're not entering it. They're preventing other people from entering it too. All right? So the first way religion can go wrong for Jesus' hearers and for us is to miss the goal. Now, we need to be careful in how we apply that idea, right? And really, we're going to have to be careful in how we apply all of these woes because Jesus is using really, like, strong in-your-face language here, right? And it's not the case that there isn't anything... It's not that... There's this way of like over-spiritualizing Christianity that some people get, right? Where like it's only about the kingdom of heaven and there's nothing to say about this life and this world. And that's not what Jesus is saying, right? Scripture regularly addresses things in this world. The problem for the Pharisees is not that they're talking about stuff in this life as well as the life to come or something, all right? But the problem was that they'd taken those things in this world... And, um, and those things, like, those things find their place. They make sense in relationship to God and his kingdom, right? Each of those kind of other elements, those things about religion in this life, only find their place if God is the ultimate thing that they're leading us towards. And they had ceased caring about that ultimate thing and made it all about those other worldly things instead. So all the stuff of Christianity, 
right? The obedience and the mission and the service and the truth and the morals and the works and the prayers that we pray and the songs that we sing and the lives that we lead. And all of that stuff only has meaning and value in relationship to God and his kingdom. If it's being done as a part of our relationship to God and his kingdom, right? And if we lose sight of that as their goal and we start making it about all of that stuff, even though that stuff is good in relationship to God, We've lost the, the, the point of religion. It's like, it's like back in college when I would go on dates, right? And there was all this stuff that you would do on dates, right? You'd buy flowers and you'd, you know, you'd get a nice restaurant and you'd dress up and put on slacks and get ice cream and do all this romantic stuff, right? And that was all great, but, um, but, but, but that stuff, like if you, if you like light candles and pour the Merlot and cook a nice dinner and turn on the romantic music and, you know, lay rose petals on the floor and sit down to eat alone, we don't feel like that's romantic anymore, right? <laughs> we, feel, we feel like that's sad. And the reason for that is because, is because all of that stuff, right, all of the stuff of that romance and all of the stuff of religion only makes sense if it's leading us and centering on that relationship with God. And so we need to keep him and his kingdom as its goal. All right? Okay, one down. We're going to go on to the second one in just a minute. But first, we actually need to talk about something else quick. I try to note these things when they come up in our text. So you'll notice, if you're following along with our reading in our Bible, that we just read verse 13, and we're about to read verse 15. And some of you don't have verse 14 in your Bibles, and others of you have it in, like, brackets, okay? Um, And I literally, this morning on Facebook, saw somebody posting something about this. So I just wanted to very briefly talk about why that is. Um, So... So the Bible, right, um, when you read it, um, it is based on, like, like the, the original manuscripts of the Bible, right, like what the Apostle Paul wrote, um, we don't have that piece of paper. Does that make sense? Because for most of history, what you would do if you wanted to transmit something to somebody is you would have to copy it by hand, right? I mean, does that make sense? And there would be people, scribes they were called, whose full-time job was to sit and just copy over and over by hand these things, right? And so... On the one hand, um, if you imagine, like, doing that, right? If, if you imagine, like, I copied the whole New Testament, and then that was your copy of the New Testament, right? I would probably make some mistakes, yes? And while scribes were better than me, they would make some mistakes. That was a normal thing. And so how would you solve that? The easy way to solve that is have, like, nine other people copy the New Testament, too. Does that make sense? Like, if we have ten people copy it, like, you would see my mistakes, and you would see that the other nine people hadn't made them, and you'd say, okay, like, that makes sense. And every Bible translation in English ever has done that. We've sat down with multiple manuscripts, and we've compared those manuscripts, and we've, tried, you know, figured out what the original text says. And, um... In older translations of the Bible, largely just because of the realities of life in the older world, you didn't have access to very many manuscripts. So the King James Version, for example, which is what everyone's familiar with, it had eight different manuscripts, right? And so they sat down with those eight different manuscripts, um, and they compared them. And one of the things that would happen sometimes, you can go back through manuscripts and see this, people would write, you know people write in the margins of their books, right? Today, people would write in the manu- margins of manuscripts. And often they'd write things like, you know, you're reading these seven woes, and you'd write like a, a woe or two of your own in there, right? And at one point, one um, copy that had that in the, the margins, a couple of different, you know, People writing manuscripts copied that into that, and four of the eight manuscripts that the King James had had that, you know, in the the thing, so it included it. 
And if this is making you uncomfortable, let me just get to, cut to the chase here. So the King James had eight manuscripts, right? Today, because of modern communication technology and the internet and things, we have about 5,000 original language manuscripts of the New Testament and about 12,000 more translations. And so as a consequence, since that point, as people have gone back and compared all of those, it's become really clear that none of the early manuscripts had verse 14 in it. Does that make sense? It got copied in. And I say all of that because I... I feel like we can hear that and we see that in the Bible and it makes us like nervous, like you can't really trust the text. But I say all of that because really that's why you can regard the text that you find in your Bible as so reliable. Does that make sense? Like we've got 5,000 different texts that we're comparing and that lets us actually catch little things like that. And verse 14, it's probably in a footnote and it's a woe to people who exploit the poor and widows, right? It's not something different than what Jesus says in other places in his ministry. But I wanted to just like touch on that because here's the thing, right? Like when you're reading the Bible, there are a couple of verses at a couple of places that you'll see brackets and footnotes and kind of be like, okay, like this is a little bit debated whether it's in the original manuscripts. But basically everything you read has far more manuscript evidence than anything else you read from the ancient world. In fact, the 20 times more original language manuscripts for the New Testament than for any other ancient text. Um, Plato is second because I'm a nerd and I like those kinds of facts. Anyway, with that noted, let me know if you have any questions about that. But I wanted to do that little rabbit trail because I know that some of us can wrestle with those questions, right? Back to the second woe. Um, So we have a lot of ground to cover still, but religion can go wrong when it misses the goal we said, and it can also go wrong when it misses the true mission. When it misses the true mission. So verse 15. Woe to you, Teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. All right? So what's Jesus criticizing here? Now, first of all, he isn't criticizing the fact that the Pharisees are making converts. All right? (laughs) That part is fine. In fact, Jesus goes around trying to make converts. All right? But he does seem to have two issues with how the Pharisees are doing it. The first is hinted at in how he says it. He says they travel over land and sea to make a single convert, right? Now, here's the thing. Did the Pharisees have to, like, sail over oceans and travel over mountains to find someone who wasn't believing in God? Right? The answer is no, they did not. Uh, I mean, even, even if they weren't, like, counting all of the, the Jews that weren't actively practicing their religion in Jerusalem, there were gen- Half of Jerusalem was Gentile in that day, right? They could have found lots of people to try to convert where they were. Instead, what they're doing is sailing over oceans and mountains to find rich, influential converts to, to Judaism. That is to say that they're looking, for, um, they're looking for people who are important and who will make them look important if they convert them. And then rather than converting them to salvation in God, Jesus also says that they make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Which is to say that they aren't trying to just make converts to follow after the Lord. What they're trying to do is make converts to Phariseeism, to make members of their little party who will again help them kind of gain influence in the world. That they're interested in making political and social allies rather than calling people to follow after the Lord. So they'd missed the mission, right? By making it about something other than God as well. By making it about themselves. God is on a mission of salvation and restoration in this world, and our job as Christians is to join him in that mission and not to make it about ourselves. 
I think about that in a lot of ways. I think about that with my kids. That's what I was reflecting on this week, right? It is so easy for us in different ways to kind of dream certain dreams for our kids, right? That they'd have kind of good-paying, respectable jobs and marry and have lots of grandkids and live next door. And all of that is a good thing, right? It's not wrong to have those desires for our kids. But the reality is that my kids exist for God's mission, and not just to serve my dreams. So if the stuff I listed is God's desire for them, that's great, and I can celebrate it. But it's not necessarily, right? God might call them to do things that, um, he might call them to far-off places. He might call them to do unglamorous things to help the least of these. He might even call them into hardship and danger. And that doesn't mean that we have to like that fact, right? Of course, it's normal for us as parents to wrestle with that. But it does mean that we need to submit to it and seek to encourage and support our kids in whatever God calls them into. That I need to be doing that because my life is part of God's mission and that my children's lives are part of his mission as well. Okay, so religion can go bad by missing the goal and missing the mission. The third woe then comes in verses 16 through 22. And in it, Jesus says that religion also goes wrong when it confuses legalism with obedience when it confuses legalism with obedience. So Jesus goes into this little discussion about oaths and vows. And it can be kind of strange to us, but here's what's going on. So the Pharisees had, by Jesus' day, developed these kind of hair-splitting definitions of what kind of promises you made that you had to keep and what promises you made that you could break, right? They would say that, like, if you swore on the temple, then you could break your, you know, your vow. But if you swore on the gold in the temple, that, that that's okay, that then, you could, um, that then you could keep it. You can see that in Matthew 23, 16. He says, you know, woe to you, blind guides. If you say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing— but anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by that oath, right? And we're not going to work through the arguments of why that is, because frankly, they're kind of silly. Um, But the point is that they took giving your word, right, which is something God calls us to do. They took giving your word as this kind of like legalistic, technical thing. God commands us to keep our word, and so we need to split hairs about what does and doesn't count. And Jesus basically says, nonsense, right? He says, this is nonsense. Keeping your word means keeping your word. It doesn't matter whether you swear by the temple or the gold in the temple or the altar or what's on the altar. Every promise is before God. It's all God's, and that's who you're answerable to. In other words, the Pharisees had missed the fact that obedience wasn't about towing a line, right, or squeaking through on technicalities. Obedience is a matter of the heart, and it's a matter of the spirit of the commandments. And we can't confuse that obedience with a kind of rigid legalism. And it doesn't work like that. And we'll talk about what that means in just a minute. But it goes along with the next woe, fourth, that religion goes wrong when it confuses lesser things with greater things. When it confuses lesser things with greater things. So in verse 23, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, But you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. So he's saying the Pharisees are super focused on certain areas of the law. So like scripture calls us to tithe of our income, right? And the Pharisees were all about that. They would like, they would pull a couple of leaves off of a mint plant, right? To like put in their tea or whatever. And before they did, they would like snip off a tenth of each of the leaves and set it aside to make sure that they were giving it as a tithe. They were incredibly scrupulous, but somehow in the midst of cutting off the tenths of the leaves of their spices, they've lost the call to love people and to treat them justly and to be faithful to God. 
Now notice Jesus isn't saying that it's sort of inherently wrong to tithe like that, right? He says, you know, go ahead and do the latter, that thing, um, but keep a sense of proportion. If you are so focused on that that you forget the basic ABCs of mercy and justice, then you need to check your priorities. I love the image he uses in verse 24. He says, you blind guides, you strain out a gnat but swallow a camel, right? It's like the person has this bowl of soup, right? And they find a fly in it and they call over the waiter and throw a fit and get it strained out. And that's not inherently wrong, right? Jesus isn't saying to eat the fly in your soup, but he's saying there's a dead camel in your soup too. (laughs) And, and, you know, I mean, and that's a lot more important, which is that's what you should be worried about, right? All right, and so those two woes together are meant to caution against a kind of legalism that can creep into the way we approach Christianity. We make it about these kind of like precise rules, and we treat it like we're lawyers, and we focus on these little details and forget the basic stuff of what it means. And again, there's a wrong way you can take that. Jesus is not saying that the rules God gives doesn't matter, right? The rules are meant to kind of serve to shape the way we understand obedience. He's not attacking the Pharisees because they obey the law. In fact, he's attacking them because they don't, right? Here's what I mean. So my children, like all children are kind of little lawyers. Have you ever noticed that, right? So like the other day, I'm carrying, you know, I've got these boxes in my hand and I'm trying to go out the front door and Kanan is sitting playing with like Legos on the the carpet and I'm like, Kanan, you know, I mean, can you open the front door for me? And he says, yes. And he keeps playing with Legos. And I'm like, Kanan. And he looks up at me and he says, he says, you didn't ask me to open it, just whether I could, There are, and, and, and of course, there are areas of life where it's okay to be a lawyer. Like, if you're a lawyer, right, that's your job. But um, most of the time, we understand that obedience means something different than that, right? It means following not just the letter of the law, but the spirit. So when, my, when I tell my kids not to call each other stupid, that doesn't mean come up with other mean things to say to each other, right? And it means um, that... When, um, that we're not just supposed to seek the minor areas of obedience, but make sure that we seek the major ones, right? So like when one of my kids is in tears because another one hit them, and I'm like, you know, you need to apologize to your brother or sister, and they're like, well, but first I need to pick up my toys, right? <laughs> that, you know, that, that you can't take one kind of element of the law and use it to avoid the greater things. Christian obedience, true obedience, is always meant to be about a posture of life not a list of little rules. It's about a posture of life, right? And we need those specific laws that God gives us to shape that. Those are the things that kind of tell us what the outlines of that posture is supposed to look like. But um, the posture is what they're meant to lead us to. So what that means, for example, is like we're called to generosity as Christians, right? And there are specific things that that says about things like tithing in the Bible. But those things, while they are true and helpful, are not the sum of generosity, Right? Being a generous person means that I should be generous with my time with people. It means I should be generous with praise, generous in relationships. It means that I should do things like give people gifts and pick up the tab at lunch. Generosity is the posture that I'm being called into. And what I shouldn't do is use these sort of specific rules about that to kind of excuse not being generous in a broader way. And that's true of every area of obedience, right? Purity in scripture does not mean like, how far can I go? Love doesn't just mean not hurting people. When we talk about the life God commands, our question should not be like, what's the minimum kind of standard I can meet in order to, you know, to live the life God commands. Our question should be, how much like Christ can I become?
So we're called to Christ-like lives of love and obedience and service, not to be lawyers with the law of God. All right. Four down, three to go. So the next two belong together as well, all right? First, Jesus tells us that religion goes wrong when it pursues outward righteousness. When it pursues outward righteousness. So verses 25 and 26. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will be clean as well. So Jesus uses this image of a cup, right? And he says the Pharisees are all about cleaning the outside of the cup so that when you set it up on the shelf, it looks nice and pretty. They polish it and make it shine, but anyone who has used a cup knows that that's not enough to actually get the cup clean, right? If I ask somebody, like, did you wash these dishes? And they say, the outsides of them, I don't feel like, okay, now they're safe to use. Instead, Jesus says, what's most important is the internal stuff. That's actually where we need to start with righteousness. It is sin in our hearts that causes sin to overflow into our lives. So we need to focus on true righteousness, inward heart righteousness, rather than just trying to keep up appearances. And likewise, then the sixth woe, he says, religion goes wrong when it hides inward sin. When it hides inward sin. So he uses a second similar image, but with a little bit of a twist. He says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Now that's similar to the thing he just said about the cup, but there's kind of a twist, right? Because now the image isn't just a cup that you can just look inside and see that it's dirty, right? The image is of a whitewashed tomb. It looks beautiful, right? I mean, I I love to go for walks in cemeteries. I don't know if that makes me morbid, but oftentimes I'll kind of just like go and walk and like pray or whatever in a cemetery because it's beautiful and peaceful. And it looks so pretty, right? But just feet underneath you, you don't want to think about what's there. Yes, he's saying that like it looks beautiful, but on the inside it's full of dead things. So the Pharisees aren't just mistaken in focusing on outward righteousness, He's saying that they're actually trying to use that outward righteousness to hide the sin in their hearts. That they are whitewashing themselves, trying to make themselves look good when there's actually sin inside. False religion is always about keeping up appearances, right? I mean, we could preach a whole sermon on that, on the need for true holiness rather than the hypocrisy of outward righteousness. That word that Jesus uses over and over here, hypocrites, right? That's a familiar word to us, but Jesus is the one who actually kind of coins this use of the word because the word actually means actor, um, like on a stage or in a play, right? So that's the image he's giving of kind of play acting. Maybe, though, the thing that I was left reflecting on as I thought about this this week, right, is that... um, The way that we often deal with our problems is by pretending like they're not there, right? I mean, that's true just on a surface level. Like, um... Like when something's wrong with your car. You know, you know what I'm talking about? And you hear that noise, and there's always this temptation for us to just like turn up the radio. You know what I mean? You know, that, that light comes on. And I, I literally have had the conversation with someone that says, can you just make that light go off on my dashboard? You know what I'm talking about? We have this temptation to deal with what's there. 
But obviously that's not actually solving the problem. The problem's still there. In fact, the problem's probably going to get worse, and the fact that your radio is turned up louder isn't going to help you when the wheels fall off, right? We have an overwhelming urge to hide our sin. I, I mean, I do, right? But sin grows in the darkness. It gains its power in shadows. It grows and grows until the wheels end up falling off. And so the only way to really kill it and deal with it is stop trying to just make the outside look okay, but instead do the work of admitting the stuff that's inside and starting to try to deal with it. So, I mean, tell your secrets to a friend that you can trust, right? Not to everybody. I'm not naive about it, but somebody that you can trust, share those secrets with, right? Talk with somebody about your struggles, Don't try to hide behind the mask of righteousness. Don't whitewash the outside because that will actually enable your sin to grow. Work instead to begin bringing it into the light where it withers and loses some of its power. That's six woes. One more. Jesus warns us that religion goes wrong when it stops listening to God. When it stops listening to God. So Jesus starts talking about how these religious leaders build fancy tombs for the prophets of generations past, but that it was their parents and grandparents who killed those prophets. So starting in verse 30, So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead then and complete what your ancestors started. Now this isn't just Jesus like insulting the Pharisees' mothers, right? He's not trying to just be mean here. But what he's saying is that although they venerate these prophets from ages past, just like their parents, they don't actually want to hear from God either. That they will do the same things, he says, when God speaks to them. Verse 34, Therefore I am sending you prophets and sages and teachers, and some of them you will kill and crucify, and others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. So here's what's important to recognize about this. Jesus' root issue isn't just that the Pharisees are being jerks to these people, right? It's not even that the Pharisees kill these people. His root issue is why they are killing them. The prophets and sages and teachers, these are the people sent by God to proclaim his truth, and in particular, to proclaim his truth in a way that calls his people to repentance. And that is what these religious people and their ancestors don't want to hear. What they find so intolerable. A message that says that there's ways that they are wrong and ways that they need to repent. They weren't interested in listening to God if God wasn't going to say that they were just great upstanding people. And that's the root reason that religion can be so destructive in our world. When you stop having a God outside of yourself, a God who you can listen to and who speaks to you and who calls you to account, a God who confronts you with your own sin and failing, when you stop having that, then religion becomes dangerous. That's true on a big global level, right? One of the, I mean, the scariest groups of people in our world, right, are people who feel that they 100% have God on their side. Yes, that he has signed off on everything that they want and he validates all of their desires. That's true on a global level. And that's true on a personal level. It is easy for me to seize on the stuff in Christianity that I like, right? The particular kind of rules or duties or commandments that are easy for me or that I'm good at. It's easy for me to seize on those things and ignore the other stuff. Avoid the inconvenient stuff. And that can make me into a scary person too. 
That's the root of how religion goes wrong. When we let God be remade in our image. Now again, like we said at the beginning, because I know some of you wrestle with these things, that doesn't disprove religion, right? Some people talk like it does. That impulse that I described, though, to make God in our image, that, because, that happens because I'm ultimately just this unavoidably selfish being left to myself, right? And removing religion from the equation might remove my ability to kind of like, you know, divinize my selfish desires, but it also removes the only thing that can really check me because there is, if there is no God in heaven, then I really can operate like I'm the greatest thing in the world. If there's... Our tendency to make God in our image doesn't disprove religion, but it should warn us very sternly about how we approach our faiths. The scariest thing in the world is a person who is comfortable in Christianity. A person who is comfortable in Christianity. Here's what I mean by that. The Bible is a book that should constantly challenge us. It is all about, in a real way, challenging us, right? It also gives us welcome and and, and stuff, but it is meant to constantly convict me of my sin, and it is meant to constantly call me to be more like the perfect holiness of Jesus, and it is meant ultimately to show me my need of a salvation that comes from beyond me. The Bible is supposed to do all of those things, and all of those things in a real way make me uncomfortable, right? God is meant to make me uncomfortable, Scripture speaks of fearing God, right? And that's, that's that language that we so often miss. And obviously there's a way to take that wrong. The Apostle Paul says it's not that we fear God's judgment because of Jesus, but it's that God is so great and good and real and different from me that when I come into his presence, I have to acknowledge the fact that there is something greater and something other there that challenges the way that I am and challenges the comfortable life that I like to build for myself. If Christianity doesn't tell us regularly that we are following, falling short and that we aren't where God wants us, then it ceases to be Christianity and becomes something dangerous instead. Now let me try to give you a picture of this, all right? This, this is this picture that is not original to me, but that I always have found helpful, all right? So here's how I think most of us expect religion to feel. So we have God's standard, right? And our lives are supposed to feel like a process of getting closer and closer to that, right? That's how we kind of expect religion to appeal. But the problem is that's actually a really dangerous picture. Here's why. First, because the more that happens, the more the cross shrinks, right? My measure of how much I need Jesus' salvation is the gap between me and God's standards. And so the closer I get, the less I feel like I need Jesus. And at the same time, the more I grow, Right? Because the less I need the cross, then the better I am left to myself. That's what false religion looks like. So here's how true religion feels, all right? This isn't the right picture either, but true religion actually often feels like that. That I I feel like I'm a worse Christian than I felt 10 years ago in many ways, right? I've come to recognize a lot more sin in my heart than I used to. And there's something good about that because it means the cross is growing, right? And I need the cross to grow. And it means that I am shrinking, So that's closer to the truth, but that picture can be really discouraging, right? (laughs) Because I don't want my picture of religion to be that I'm getting worse and worse, and that's probably not what the world needs. And the reason is because here, I think, is how true religion often works. So there is a sense in which we are growing. We're called to grow more like Jesus, right? And so you can see us growing, but at the same time, our our understanding of God's standards grows as well. 
that what we're recognizing is that God's standards are actually much higher than we thought they were as we continue to come to Scripture and are convicted of our sin. And that means that while in an objective sense we're growing, I can never feel like I've made it. I can never feel like I'm better than all those other people because the reality is that I have a much deeper understanding of the sin and need in my own life as well. And that's a good thing. Because as much as it can sometimes feel challenging, it means that while I'm growing, my picture of the cross is also growing, and my understanding of my own greatness is shrinking. That is what true religion is meant to look like. Which means that instead of getting religion wrong, getting religion right rests on recognizing our need for God. If you look at verse 37... Jesus, he, he comes and he gives these seven woes, and then he says this to end it. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you are not willing. So Jesus again mentions their sin, right? Their unwillingness to listen to God. But in that moment when it seems like the climax is going to be him rejecting them, instead he says that he has longed so often to gather them together the way like a mother hen gathers chicks and covers them with her wings. That God says that though you do all these things, that is how I want to draw you and welcome you in. That is God's attitude. What Jesus warns us against is that we can be unwilling. That we can be unwilling to come to that. Because the thing about that image, which is what true Christianity looks like, is that in that image, the false religion that we build for ourselves just can't have a place, right? A religion that is all about me, that is all about building myself up and relying on myself and looking good and not listening to God, but rather trying to feel great in myself— That kind of religion cannot admit that that's what I need, right? It wants to kind of go out there and do it on my own and use God as an accessory to life. But what God calls us to is that in truth, we need to acknowledge that we are defenseless children, little chicks that need to be gathered under his wings. The question of true religion is not how great am I, but how great is God and how great is his love And how great is the salvation that he has worked for us. How great is what he has done. Asking that question, like we said, it is painful and challenging to the way that we believe those false religions in our hearts. But it is also this incredibly beautiful thing, right? Because if that's what religion teaches us, if that is the posture that we adopt, then it still comes into this world as something that is powerful, but it comes into this world that is something that is powerful and beautiful rather than powerful and dangerous, right? Because that picture has the power to heal us. and It has the power to heal the world around us rather than to harm them. So let's take that picture of God's love and welcome and make that the thing that we fix our eyes on instead. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, I acknowledge all the ways that I so easily make Christianity about myself, about serving my own interests. Um, Lord, all of us, I think, live somewhere between being a saint and being a Pharisee. So I pray that you would convict us of our sin, make us willing to hear our challenge, and as we do, make us run to you to be gathered underneath your sheltering wing. I thank you for your love for us, God, in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Would you stand with me and sing?
Amen. One of the things we didn't dwell on is that false religion, in addition to all the stuff we said, destroys our ability to live in true fellowship with each other because the people around us become threats, right? The people we have to keep up appearance to, the people that we have to hide our sin from, but that true religion enables us to open ourselves to each other in true fellowship and community. So as you go from this place, bear each other's burdens, share your secrets with each other, and walk into the fellowship of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you'd like to join us, there's a little bit of fellowship time where there's coffee and stuff after the service. There's adult education in here in a little while. And um, yeah, just go with the Lord's blessings. May the love of God the Father and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with all of you now and always. Amen.